ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, The ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Hey folks, Dave Nodding from Vetify here. You know, as a financial futurist, I'm supposed to be looking ahead, and what I'm looking ahead to is the second annual exchange ETF conference. It's right around the corner. We'll be back in Miami Beach, Florida, February 5th through February 8th. It's going to be the largest gathering of financial advisors in the whole community. We're hard at work making sure it's gonna be an experience you're not gonna forget with incredible content, great networking opportunities, and most importantly, a chance to really connect with a community of advisors as real people. I mean, after all, this is supposed to be about you. We had a great first year in 2022. We're super excited to show you how we're taking this whole idea of an event to the next level next year in 2023. We wanna hang out with ETF Prime listeners in particular. So go ahead and head to exchangeetf.com and you can use the code PRIME to get a discounted advisor ticket. And that's good until the end of the year. So we hope you'll join us. Thanks. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, this week, it's a very special edition of ETF Prime. Joining me will be Bob Pisani, Senior Markets Correspondent for CNBC and author of the brand new book, Shut Up and Keep Talking, Lessons on Life and Investing from the Floor of the New York Stock Exchange. I'll also be joined by Tom Lydon, Vice Chairman of Vetify, and the three of us are going to have a fun and freewheeling conversation around Bob's illustrious career at CNBC, which is now going on some 32 years, 25 of which he spent covering the markets directly from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. So we'll find out uh, how he ended up at CNBC, some of the lessons he's learned along the way, especially on the investment side of the equation, where I would say He's really evolved over the years to have some pretty strong views on the merits of a low-cost, passive approach. So we'll certainly discuss that and also touch on some of the very unique and interesting people he's met along the way and delve a bit into the personal side of things as well. Pull back the curtain on who Bob really is as a person. I feel like everyone sees him on TV every day, but you're going to have an opportunity to get to know Bob in a different light. So I really hope you enjoy this. Tom and I had an absolute blast hearing Bob's stories. He's a fantastic storyteller. So without further ado, here's my conversation with CNBC's Bob Pisani and Vetify's Tom Lydon. Gentlemen, great having you on the podcast. Nate, always a pleasure to be with the both of you. Two of my favorite people and two veterans of the ETF business. 
Thanks, Nate. This is going to be fun. Given what I know about both of you, I have a feeling this conversation could go just about uh, anywhere. So I'm both excited, but also a little scared to see where we end up. Uh, I certainly have my work cut out this week. Uh, but out of curiosity, how long have you two known each other? Oh, gosh, I don't even remember. I mean, I must have met Tom close to 20 years ago. Uh, I've been going to the, well, the ETF conference was, when did when was the first one? Tom? It, it had to be almost 15 years ago, Bob. Yeah. Yeah. It was 2007 or 2008. So certainly since then, but I've known you before that. Uh, I've been covering ETF since about the year, either 99 or 2000. I remember I was reporting on the spy in the late nineties and I was, I covered the gold ETF the day it happened. And I believe that was 2004. So, uh, you, yes, it's, yeah. let's just say 20 years is a good, good guess. Yeah, I, I started uh, ETF Trends in 2005. And, and shortly after, Bob, I remember hanging out with you in one of the hallways at the New York Stock Exchange, just talking about ETFs. And, and specifically, you were talking about your portfolio and you said, that's all I do. I just own ETFs. And, and that's it. And uh, that resonates throughout your book as well. So it was great to see way back then you were such a huge fan. Yeah, it was uh, one of the lessons of the book. One of the things that happens when you write something about, and the book is about my 25 years on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. And the publisher said, we want a financial history, but we want it from your perspective. What's unusual is you've been on the floor for 25 years. So you have seen 10,000 bell ringings. We actually added up in that time. And you've seen a lot of famous people. And there's the book talks about meeting some famous celebrities, you know, like Barry Manilow and Aretha Franklin and Robert Downey Jr. And what they said to me and some amusing things. But the heart of it is really um, a little bit of a, a memoir and financial memory uh, about what actually happened and what I've learned. And one of the things that you have to think about when you write something like this is, well, I believe a bunch of things. And I wrote down what I believe in, you know, including ETFs and index investing and why that works. And I'm, you have to think to yourself, why do I believe this? When did I come to believe these ideas? I have this like four pages of this is what I think I believe. But how did I come to believe this? Who taught this to me? I wasn't born this way. And it turned out there was a small group of people that had a tremendous intellectual influence on me in the 1990s. Uh, I was the um, stocks correspondent for CNBC from 1990 to 96. And in 97, I became, uh, I was the real estate correspondent from 90 to 96 and I became the stocks correspondent in 97. And right about that time, that 95 to 97 period, uh, I encountered books and people that sort of changed my life. The most important was Jack Bogle, the founder of Vanguard, uh, who had a 1999 book, um, Common Sense on Mutual Funds that changed my life. Uh, then uh, there was Jeremy Siegel, who wrote Stocks for the Long Run in 1994 about long-term returns of stocks versus bonds. Uh, there was several other people who were out there. Burton Malkiel wrote A Random Walk Down Wall Street. That was a huge influence on indexing and efficient market hypothesis. Uh, and there were other people like Charlie Ellis out there who wrote Winning the Losers Game about how um, active managers have a hard time beating uh, passive index funds and why that happens. Uh, finally, there was a whole behavioral economics school. Uh, Richard, uh, excuse me, Robert Schiller had irrational exuberance out in 2000. I met him shortly after, and that sort of opened my eyes to the role of irrationality and, and biases uh, in, in the stock market. That, and that changed my life too. I'd have to say 
in it, the, the things that I saw that changed my life were the, the, the rise of, uh, of stock trading uh, and uh, electronic stock trading. Number two, the rise of indexing and ETFs. Uh, and number three, the rise of behavioral economics. Those are the big three things, in my opinion. And that's sort of what the book is about. Yeah. And Bob, perhaps we can touch on each of those. But I'm curious, just uh, taking a step back on your motivation for writing this book. And I had an opportunity to read this over the weekend, really enjoyed it. I felt like I was a fly on the wall during the heydays of the 1990s with the rise of CNBC and everything going on at the New York Stock Exchange uh, is a dot-com bubble inflated. And then you take us through the global financial crisis. And as you alluded to, the rise of passive and, and, and ETFs, and you tell a number of colorful stories along the way. But what was your motivation for actually writing this book? So what happens when you're at one place for a long time is you you kind of, you become very well known in a little part of the world. I call it inch wide, mile deep. And in my particular case, it's the stock market by and large. Most people don't stay in the same job 25 years, literally the same job. Um, and most journalists don't at all. Journalists tend to move around in different beats. I made a conscious decision by the year 2000 to stay not just covering the stock market, but staying at the New York Stock Exchange. And CNBC has been very gracious to allow me to basically stay in my same job. And the reason I decided to stay is Number one, I love being a journalist. It's one of the things I want to do my whole life. Um, number two, I love the stock market. I love talking to people about investing. It's very interesting. It's very complicated. It's very challenging. And number three, the New York Stock Exchange affords you a very unusual perch to watch things, not just watching the daily machinations of the stock market and talking to guys on the floor, but this bell ringing they've had since the 1860s is really amazing because the most famous people in the world come through every day. There's an opening and closing bell in 25 years, 10,000 bell ringings. That's how many I've witnessed. Now, I don't talk to everybody, but imagine this. You, I say to people, what would you give to meet all of your heroes? Everybody you ever wanted to meet, every rock star, every king, queen, whatever. I've met most of them. They've come through the NYSE and you ring a bell and one day, you know, there's Motley Crue. <laughs> and that was an interesting experience. And uh, then the next day, there's the chairman of Chevron. He's standing right there. And you can walk up to them. They know who I am. Even if I'm not doing a formal interview, I can spend five or 10 minutes upstairs with them. They're usually having meetings. Say hello. What's that worth to a reporter like me? It's worth everything because I don't have to do anything. They're just here. And I can walk up and talk to them. It, it tremendous, tremendously improves your reporting and your access is, becomes amazing. So when you do this long enough, you look back and you say, well, what do I think I know? Is it worth telling people about? And I think it is. How much do I really think that I know? And it's a very challenging experience sitting down and trying to figure out, here's what I think I know. And now let me explain why. And there is a big gap between what you think you know, and then actually putting it on paper, and then figuring out a way to execute on e explaining the ideas that you have. It's very, very challenging writing a book. Hey, Bob, you, you are really a fixture at the New York Stock Exchange. I, I know it's a big part of you as well. Uh, I was honored to be a part of your book launch party at the New York Stock Exchange recently. That was a blast. It was kind of the who's who of financial media. You did a great job telling anecdotal stories, sharing some pictures Talk a little bit about that and how, what that meant to you. 
Well, like I said, one of the fun things is when, when my publisher, Harriman House, um, said to me, look, um, we'd love to have this book, but we want it from your perspective. We don't want you to write a financial history, but we know that's what you're involved in. So we want you to explain financial history, but from your point of view, how it impacted you, how you reported on it. And by the way, we love celebrity stories. We know that, you know, they're not necessarily a part of celebrity of, of financial history, but people love to hear what did Aretha Franklin have to say to you when you spend 15 minutes or Robert Downey Jr.? What did anybody say anything interesting or unusual? And it turns out, yeah, there are some very interesting stories. So, uh, for example, I, Barry Manilow came to ring the bell a few years ago. Now, I'm not a Barry Manilow fan. I'm a Ze- Led Zeppelin fan. I'm an old 60s rock guy. I, I'm not a Barry Manilow fan, but he came to promote an album and uh, he came off the stage uh, and I didn't even do the interview. My colleague uh, did the interview, but he was standing there just looking around at the NYSC. And this is one of the odd things you get when you work on the floor. He's just standing there and he's about to walk away. And I walked up to him and I said, hi. And I introduced myself. I said, listen, I just got a question for you. Is it true you wrote the State Farm jingle, that you were a jingle writer? The State Farm jingle was like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And he lit up and said, oh, yeah, I wrote that. And I I charged $500 for it, and I never regretted it. I was a jingle writer in the early 70s. And he said, that's what I did for a living. I wrote that. Then he said, I wrote the Band-Aid commercial, you know, Band-Aid stuck on me. He started singing that. And I'm saying, this is kind of cool. I'm talking to Barry Manilow. He's singing jingles. And then I said, you know, you've just sold out the Nassau Coliseum, 17,000 seats, but you haven't had a big hit in a long time. And this was, I don't know, 2016 or something like that. And he said, well, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because I, I was very well known. I sold a lot of albums uh, in the seventies and I, I did pretty well into the eighties. Um, and I didn't have as many hits after that, but I kept doing what I really liked. I kept producing albums. And what I figured out was a way to be sort of happy and not worry so much about how do you get hits and do what you want. And I, my, I kept a good part of my fan base, even if I didn't have big hits. And he said, if you, I just kept doing it and sticking to it, because that's what I like to do. And then he said, if you stay with it long enough, suddenly somebody writes a story about you and calls you a legend. And now you're famous again. So it's what he was trying to get at here was, I thought, a fairly profound observation about careers and the mid the mid part of your career. And that's what happens to a lot of us. The middle part of the career is the difficult part because you become you might have a little success in the early part of your career. Then the middle part, you get stuck and a lot of people leave and do other things. And he said, look, I I kept doing what I wanted to do because this is what I liked. And I stopped worrying about it. And now I'm on the other side. This this is kind of what happened to me. I could have left in 2000 after the dot com bust. But I really liked what I'm I like being at the stock exchange. I like hanging out with traders. I like being a journalist. I just didn't leave. And so the bottom line was Barry Manilow had actually a fairly profound thing to say. And I wasn't expecting anything from this guy at all. And I just thought it was interesting. And there's a chapter about that. Um, with Aretha Franklin, the question is, what can you say to somebody to get them interested? This is a real interesting life lesson. Suppose you want to impress somebody. What could you say to them that would make them remember you? And my advice is what I have discovered is find out what they really care about. It's not normally what they're actually doing or or saying in front of you. So in Aretha Franklin's case, she came on the floor in 2008, Christmas 2008. That was a terrible year. Remember the financial crisis? Everybody's depressed. The market's awful. And she's got a Christmas album. I know she doesn't particularly care about the Christmas album. Uh, I was 
betting that what she really cared about was her legacy. And I did an interview with her and I said, listen, um, we talked about the Christmas album. I said, listen, there's a new movie out called Ray about Ray Charles. That's tearing up. I mean, they're talking Academy Award. And it's about how Ray Charles invented soul music, crossing gospel and popular music. And you were there for this. You were the other big component. Do you have any interest in a biopic of your own? And she just lit up. She said, yes, I do. We have a team in place, and I'm really interested in doing that. And after the interview was over, she kept talking to me privately about it, that she was trying to get the team. Now, that movie eventually came out. It took 14 years for that movie to come out, but it did eventually happened. The manager, her manager came over after this and said, I don't know what you said to her, but she doesn't normally stick around and talk to reporters. So you got her interested. And this happened with Robert Downey Jr. He, they, his PR people uh, came over. He was promoting Iron Man 3 and they came over to me the day before. Uh, this is his, the PR people for uh, the promoting Iron Man and said, he's not going to talk to you or anybody else on the floor. He's just going to ring the bell and you're going to wave to him. I said, okay, maybe he'll come over and say hi. I'll just stand here. And he said, no, no, he's not going to say anything to you. Uh, forget about it. So I went home and bought, I, I used to collect comic books in the 60s and I got the first Iron Man comic. I had, still have it. It's 1963, the first Avengers comic. And I came back, he rings the bell, he comes down, he walks past me and I hold the first comic book up, the Iron Man comic book. I said, hey, Robert, do you know this? And he stops and looked at it and he comes over and says, is that the first Iron Man comic? I said, yes, it is. Come over here and say hello to the CNBC viewers. And I got the interview. And they walked away. And then his PR people came over and said, we told you he wasn't going to talk to you. I said, well, you told me, but you didn't tell Robert. You didn't get the memo. So my point here is, again, find out what really motivates people. In this case of Robert Downey, he was really interested in that. What was I going to say to him to get him to stop and talk to me? I found that he was interested in that first Iron Man comic, because that's what he was promoting. Iron Man, that's what he really was promoting. So there, those are a couple of stories that are in the book about how you get people interested or motivated or, or just odd things that people say to you. Bob, clearly you've had an opportunity to meet so many interesting people over the years, but I'm curious from a market perspective, you've covered so many major market events over the past 25 years, the dot-com bubble, the global financial crisis, the COVID crash uh, in March of 2020. I'm curious, is there a particular moment that stands out to you, especially covering the event live on air? Is there a particular moment that is just seared into your memory? Yeah, the dot-com, uh, not the dot-com, excuse me, the 2008-2009 financial crisis. And I'll tell you why. That crisis was a disaster for my generation. I'm a baby boomer. I'm the classic baby boomer. Uh, and what happened to my generation there was very different than 2000 when a small group of sort of active tech traders got annihilated. Uh, this, ha this was a much broader destruction of wealth. Uh, not only did baby boomers sell the stock market down, they sold real estate down. Remember, it's, not buy, it's buy low, sell high, not buy high, sell low. But they did the opposite. They sold at the bottom. And I'll tell you how I know this because I used to follow the monthly um, monthly mutual fund sales. And, and by de December 2008, the stock market was already down 35 to 40% or so. And 
we didn't know if there was a bottom, but there was a brief rally at that time in December 2008. And everybody was thinking, okay, this is going to be the bottom. And it didn't. The market didn't bottom until March 2009. And ultimately, it was down 50% from the high to low from 2007 to 2009. And you would think that in 2009, at the bottom, you wouldn't see any more selling. Because the one rational thing, if we were completely rational actors, the one thing that you would agree upon is you don't sell with the market down 50% unless you think the U.S. economy is going to zero. I don't know many people who think that. But that's not what happened. Actually, what happened was it was selling accelerated. Mutual fund selling accelerated in March 2009. Now, we didn't know that that was going to be the bottom. That was, but we didn't know that. But a rational actor would say, you don't sell down 50%. You either hold on or you buy. You do the op. But that's not what happened. And that's kind of when I became a real believer in behavioral economics. That behavioral economics attempts to show people, uh, attempts to show how people really act, not how they're supposed to act rationally. And they don't act rationally. They don't buy low, sell high. They buy high, sell low, and they, they panic. And why do they do that? And, and I knew about behavioral economics long before that, but that's when the lessons of it really, really uh, came home. And, you know, we, we can talk a little bit about that if you want, but one of the, one of the big chapters in the book is exactly what happened there. Uh, the other part, I think, um, involves predicting stocks and where they're going and why the future is so unknowable. Maybe we can talk about that. That's, I think that's a very important point to get across. Yeah, I'd love to talk more about both because as I read the book, behavioral economics is something that's threaded throughout. And, you know, as I thought about your perch that, that you mentioned earlier, you have had as good of a, a perch as anyone over the past few decades to observe investor behavior. I guess maybe talk about the impact Robert Schiller had on your thinking around this? You, you, you note him quite a bit in the book and, and maybe a few key takeaways or lessons you've learned here. Yeah. So um, Robert Schiller had a book out and one of the great timing events of all time in, um, in 2000 called uh, Irrational Exuberance. And it was the market right at the perfect top of the market. It was really, really remarkable, actually, what he did. Uh, and he, Schiller had an insight decades before that was very, very important. He looked at the volatility of the stock market and he said, if the market was perfectly rational and the purpose of buying stocks is you're getting a future stream of dividends and potentially earnings, if, if the market was perfectly rational, you would expect a certain degree of volatility. And he calculated this. And what he found was the market actually was much more volatile than you would expect if people acted completely rationally. And he attributed this extra volatility to a somewhat irrational component in investing um, that people don't actually act. And this is sort of the birth of, 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 of behavioral economics. And, and, and it goes back for decades. And part of the things that actually happen here uh, with behavioral economics uh, is that it, it, it taught us that there are enormous biases that are out there uh, that affect the ability of people to think clearly. And there's sort of two broad bi bias groups. There's emotional biases. They're biases of, of feelings. So uh, people have, for example, they have overconfidence. Uh, they come to believe they're infallible when they hit a winning streak. That's a classic bias. Uh, it's an emotional bias. Uh, people exhibit herd behavior. They blindly follow what others are doing. Um, that, again, that's an emotional bias. Then there's other kinds of biases, cognitive errors, where people just think wrong. So, for example, there's the classic one is a confirmation bias. People select information that supports their own point of view, and they ignore any information that contradicts their point of view. They don't want to think about it. 
Um, there is another one. The classic one is the gambler's fallacy. You know, they believe that just because they've done well in the past, you know, a stock, they'll continue to do, do well in the future. They can't lose. It, and that's sort of wrong, too. So it turns out there are dozens of these biases out there. So what what does this mean? Well, when you're engaged in something like stock picking, you, you, you know, Tom, you guys have been doing this a long time, the two of you. If you watch the markets long enough, you have to wonder, why is everybody so bad at predicting the future? And it's not just we make fun of amateur stock pickers. You know, they can't do it. They're dumb money. But professional stock pickers are terrible at doing this. The economists are terrible at predicting the economy. The, the Federal Reserve, which has the best economists in the world, has a terrible track record predicting the U.S. economy. How is this possible? How is it possible that everybody is so bad at predicting the future? And, it, you know, it turns out that there are two problems. The first is this bias problem. You know, these predictions are riddled with biases that limit the quality of the predictions. That's the first one. There's another problem uh, that you only kind of realize if you just sit and look at this for years. And that is we really don't have complete information on the future because events occur that are unpredictable and can change the outcomes. So think about this. Think about trying to be an analyst. It's December. You're trying to predict where the price of the stock, pick a stock, Caterpillar is going to be one year from now based on what you think are dividend and earnings trends. You know, you think like you'd be able to do this. It turns out it's about impossible because every company has millions of variables, each of which can affect the outcome. And some of them are predictable, some of them are not. But just think of the macro level. You, you, the economy could have surprises. You could have inflation. You could have interest rates. You could have a war. You could have a cyber attack. The, the company might have a competitor that comes out of nowhere. It could be bought. Uh, the, the CEO could fall ill and retire. I mean, that's just off the top of your head. There's literally millions of possible things that can happen uh, that will affect that. So when you when you think about this, when you think about the the biases that infect the ability to make predictions and you look on the unpredictability of the future, you become a lot more humble about this. I used to laugh at how dumb the analysts were. And now that I, you know, I've had a decade to, you know, sort of think about this, um, it, it's quite I'm, I'm a little less arrogant than I used to be. Those of you who are interested in a book, the book that really kind of like crystallized um, my vague misgivings uh, is Super Forecasters by Philip Tetlock. This fellow was quite amazing. He has done decades of work examining just what I discussed. Why is everyone so bad at this? Um, and not only has he discussed what I just said, he has had a project dedicated to try to improving forecasting. And it turns out that while the future is unknowable, you can get better at making predictions because the key is to be more open-minded in the way you look at things. It's it's not whether you necessarily know more. It's how you look at things. So there's two classic types of people. There's the hedges, the hedgehogs and the foxes. Hedgehogs are people who have a very strong ideological position. They know one big thing and they superimpose this ideology on everything. Foxes are very broad-minded. They're not ideological. New information comes in. They change their forecasting models. And it turns out fox-like people are better than hedgehog-like people at predicting things. And he's got uh, a, a, a project, a good judgment project that's been going for years. It's very, very interesting that it attempts to show people what exactly people are doing wrong and how they can improve the forecasting. So anybody's interesting, I would highly recommend um, Philip Tetlock's uh, super forecasting book. 
Bob, you, you, t- you talk about in the book and honing your craft, and that's really kind of key and critical. I, I think you've got a segment where you need to get a certain number of points across. And then at the same time, talk a little bit about the person that you made up that you talk to every day. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. So, you you know, in, in TV, um, time, real estate is very valuable. So, you know, a typical morning, I'll, I'll be on with Jim Cramer and I'll, I'll have three, four minutes to come on and you play around with what you think the most important things. It's sort of like ready, set, go. You got four minutes go and you don't have more than four minutes. So you, there's a chapter in the book where I describe what I look like and how I look at the news and how I decide what I'm going to say in the morning. But it's a, it's a sort of broad look about what the viewers really want to know about and what, what viewers at CNBC want to know about, you know, some of them are active traders and they're interested in what's what I call the horse race. We called this the horse race decades ago, which is who's winning and losing today in the stock market. Others, and which are probably the majority of people are not active traders, but they're watching their money and they're sitting there just want to know what the trends are. And I try to uncover the broader trends in the market. What's going on today? That's not necessarily IBM's up 3%, but here's the trends. Here's where the, the buying selling's going over the last few months, where it's likely to go broad, broad trends. Part of the problem when you're staring into a black TV camera is who's watching. So 30 years ago, 32 years ago, when I started CNBC, I had this problem. I said to myself, I don't know who I'm talking to. I was the real estate reporter. So to alleviate this anxiety I had, I made up somebody. Uh, I made up the woman was uh, 55 years old. Uh, She lived in Minneapolis. Her husband worked for 3M, uh, who was there. She was an accountant and she had two sons. One was 22, the other was 26, and they were buying a house. So this woman was reasonably educated, accountant. She knew what a mortgage was. um, And I had to talk to her level. And one of the things I had to do is I knew that she knew what a mortgage was. But if I used the word mortgage-backed security, she didn't know what that was, and I had to describe it. So I knew what level this woman understood uh, and why she was watching. And I knew what she wanted, the information. I just literally invented her. And she became very real to me. So I could see her watching me. If I was talking about something about mortgages, she'd be very interested because she wants to know about it. So she could tell her sons about the difference between a 15 year mortgage and a 30 year mortgage. But if I started talking about mortgage backed securities and didn't explain what I was talking about, she got lost and a little confused. And I could see her being confused. So as a result, my reporting got very sharp because I spoke at the same level all the time. I didn't go all over the place. And this is a real problem when you're dealing with a specialized medium like financial reporting. This week's episode is brought to you by Goldman Sachs Asset Management ETFs. Smart investments made simple. Learn more at gsam.com ETFs. Alps Distributors, Inc. is the distributor of the Goldman Sachs ETF funds. Bob, one thing I'm curious about, you mentioned earlier how difficult it is uh, for anybody to correctly forecast the future. We know that. Um, and it doesn't matter what type of analyst or expert or economist, Fed, uh, official, nobody can get the future right. And I'll never forget. So when you and I first met last year, one of the first things you said to me, and you were very nice about this, but also very direct, you told me not to BS you on answers to any questions you asked, that basically you'll know if I actually know my stuff. Now, hopefully you thought I knew my stuff, but regardless, um, you're in a difficult position in that you're interviewing 
these, you know, quote unquote experts every day on TV. And I'm just curious, how do you balance that? And in, in, I guess, A, knowing what, that somebody actually knows what they're talking about, but B, inherently they don't know the future. So as you're reporting on this, how do you, how does that, what is that interplay like? Well, my biggest influence, literary influence in my life was Ernest Hemingway. And he was, uh, of course, a famous novelist, but he was also a reporter uh, and did some very good reporting on the war. And even when he was in uh, Key West um, and Hemingway used to say that the most important thing a reporter could have is a built in foolproof crap detector. And that is not easy to develop. Uh, you really have to work at it. And what, what happened to me is, again, this is one of the best things about just sticking around a long time in something, um, is that you, you develop that. And one of the things you develop is sources that you can trust. So what, what's important in a source? The two things that really matter in a source is, number one, they have to know what they're talking about. Duh, yes. But also, they have to be able to give you an honest opinion. So you could talk to an expert, but listen, um, everybody talks their book. This is Wall Street. And in fact, everybody talks their book on everything. It doesn't matter whether you're on Wall Street or not. Everybody has self-interests. Um, you could be talking to an analyst and they're bullish and they're going to want to talk to you about why they're bullish and why you should be too bullish too, Bob. Um, and you need to recognize that and understand that. But that doesn't mean you can't talk to people. If you just stamp your feet and say, oh, people have biases. I'm not talking to them. You're going to be a lonely reporter. Forget about it. You've got to be able to filter that out. So you need to develop sources that know what they're talking about and that can give you an honest opinion. Uh, even if the news isn't great, they'll say, look, this isn't great news. Here's what I think is going on. Um, I, I want you to quote me or I don't want you to quote me. But the most important thing is to get for me as a reporter is to get a sense of what's going on. The most realistic, honest way that I can a sense of what's going on. I want to be able to turn around and explain it to people because that's what we do. We're storytellers. We explain stuff. This is a complicated business. The stock market's huge. It's thousands of stories, thousands of stocks in it. And, you know, you, our job is to make a coherent narrative out of it. So I keep going back to the idea uh, of finding trusted sources. So I'll give you an example. I found my 1999 contact list a few years ago. I had 500 people on it. This list was astonishing. Not only did I have 500 people, emails, phone numbers of the secretaries. It was an incredible document. And I looked at it and the first thing I noticed was 80% of the people are gone. Uh, and this was 20 years later. 80%. That's how much Wall Street has changed or shrunk. A lot of these were sell-side people. And the second thing that I noticed uh, is that, oh, my God, I was talking to 500 people in 1999. That's I, I couldn't believe that. But there it was with the phone numbers and everything. I don't talk. To, that's a crazy number of people to talk to. I don't talk to 500 people anymore. I might talk to, I don't know, maybe 100 people on any kind of regular basis once a month or more. Um, and the reason I don't I don't do that is because I'm much more efficient in the way I do reporting. First off, I have. 30 years, 32 years of experience covering financial markets. In many cases, I'm more experienced, seasoned, and knowledgeable than the sources that I'm talking to. I know more than they do in some cases. So it's not like I'm some, you know, some tabula rasa, some clean slate that anybody could write on. I know exactly what's going on in this business. And that because I've been here for 25 years, just like you guys have. So if somebody says something stupid to you, you're going to know that. You know, you're not this is not your first month on the job. 
And that seasoning is very, very valuable to a lot of people, including, of course, any news agency and why they news agencies tend to keep around a few, not a lot, but a few um, seasoned people. So, again, it, it's it's the the business of finding people you can trust where I can call up. I've done this with you, Tom. I've called you up and said, look, uh, I, there's something going on in the ETF space here. Give me, Tell me what you think. And I've known you for 20 years. I One of the reasons you and I are friends and still talk to each other is I respect your opinion. If I thought you were an idiot, I would have stopped calling you 20 years ago. But here we are. We're still talking together. Well, there's a reason for that, right? Got to judge a character there, Bob. Yeah. I, I can be off occasionally, but nonetheless, we're still friends. Bob, what about just the media's responsibility? If we go back to investor behavior, and I think about the dot-com bubble, and then even this period following the March 2020 COVID crash, how much do you think the media contributed to the overall investor psychology here? And I know you talk a little bit about this in the book, uh, just in terms of the fact that your job is to cover what you're witnessing in the markets. You're going to report on exactly what you're seeing. But I do think some people would argue that the media actually contributed to some of the things that we saw. Do, do you think about your role in all of this when reporting? Like what type of responsibility do you have? Sure. Well, look, not that event, any event. Look, there's a whole chapter in uh, Schiller's book, Irrational Exuberance, about the role of the media in promoting uh, or exacerbating asset bubbles. And he goes back to the 1920s and looks at this. So think, I'll just talk about a bubble, for example. What's a bubble? It's a, it's a sudden rapid rise in asset prices of something, stocks, bonds, gold, real estate, whatever, um, that is hard to explain by fundamentals. Um, and uh, this is a very well-studied phenomenon. And to get it a bubble, you need a bunch of things. But one of the things that Schiller pointed out that was really interesting was, Asset bubbles in the modern era, like in the last 400 years, really started with the birth of newspapers. And it's a very interesting observation because what he pointed out was a bubble needs, first, you need something to invest in, number one. Number two, you need a a way to do that. In the case of gold, you know, people have been moving gold around for, for thousands of years. But the modern stock market was really only created about 1600. Uh, and it was created in Amsterdam to really trade one stock, the Dutch East India Company, Dutch East India Company, which was the spice business from 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 India and uh, and Indonesia and Malaysia. And these guys floated a company that was the biggest company in the world. And one of the things that they told everybody was you're going to participate in the profits from the spice business. Well, there's the birth of modern stock investing and fundamental investing as well. So these people went out and sold the stock. And for, you know, several hundred years up until 1800, this was the biggest company uh, in the world. So you want to, you know, the people tell me, well, fundamental investing doesn't matter that much anymore. And I tell them, well, I think it does. I think it really does matter an awful lot. So um, the, uh, the, I think the point here is fundamental analysis still really matters in the stock market. And so when I looked at Schiller and I, I said, he, what he noted here was, in that very first effort in the 1600s, bubbles occurred because the newspapers. Number one, you had a investable vehicle. You had the Dutch East India Company stock. 
Uh, number two, you had correct market conditions. People were able to, there was enough of the economy for people to buy the stocks. You had economic conditions were right, lower interest rates, things like that. But number three, you needed a medium to propagate the information. You, and the medium in this case was newspapers. And he pointed out the very first newspapers that modern dissemination occurred at the same time. So you had this perfect little thing happen where you had an asset, you had a way to invest in the asset, um, you had an exchange to trade it on, and you had a medium to propagate it. Why am I explaining this history? Because you, the, he goes on to talk about the function of the media in in, in helping not necessarily create or spur asset bubbles, but the, the the act of reporting alerts people to what's going on, which drags more people into the whole thing. So is the media complicit? The word complicit sounds like a criminal indictment, but and it's so it's not in that sense. But of course, it's complicit in the sense that the act of reporting something that's moving will drag in other people and may, in fact, cause other people to buy in because they saw the information in the newspaper. So does that mean the media is complicit? Well, yes, complicit in the sense that it's helping propagate the information. Yes. Now, in some cases, what he found was, for example, uh, in the 1990s during the dot-com bubble, they also found that the media was very actively playing a role in trying to talk down the bubble. And so in that sense, you can't say, oh, they were complicit. These guys just, you know, they, these newspaper reporters they just write stories or these TV reporters just keep pumping this stuff up. There was plenty of skepticism. And there was on CNBC, too, by the way, in the 1990s. Uh, and Schiller actually found that, well, yes, uh, there's no doubt media is involved in propagating uh, bubbles, but they can also be involved in bursting bubbles and making people more cautious. Bob, it, it's uh, it's amazing how many millions of people over the years have let you into their home, into their office. They they trust you. They look for your opinion. Obviously, you've owned your craft in a, in a wonderful way. But, you know, at, at the same time, as, as you look at this book, what I really loved about it is we got to learn more about you as a person. We You don't have the ability to do that on air in that five minute segment where you've got to get a lot of points across. What has that meant to you? Number one, and a follow-up question is this. Uh, I know you enjoy what you do, but talk about what you intended to do when you were a youngster back in the seventies. I don't love the story that this was not the plan. Well, uh, when I was growing up and this was the sixties, not the seventies, you're making me younger than I sound. Um, I had two ambitions. I wanted to be a famous physicist. I was really into physics uh, and I wanted to be a famous writer. My heroes in the 60s were public intellectuals that were authors. Uh, Norman Mailer, for example, um, Gay Talisi, Hunter S. Thompson, uh, Tom Wolfe. These were guys who wrote about the big stories of their time, the 1960s, the space program. And I was into all that. These guys were having so much fun and I loved to write. Uh, and I still do. I still consider myself a print guy. And that's what I wanted to do. Um, and I was really interested in trying to do that. And I, I, I basically realized I was a very mediocre physicist. Um, mathematics is a very interesting business. Um, it, it's one of those areas where you have true aptitude or not. And you can it's sort of like being a great wine connoisseur at certain people. You can work as hard as you want on recognizing fine gradations of taste in wine, but at some point 
you're not going to be great at it. Um, some people are just going to be better. And I found that out with mathematics. I was rather disappointed that I, I was generally a mediocre mathematician. Um, and so I, I, I set my sights on trying being a, a journalist. And my father was teaching real estate, um, got a job teaching real estate at the Wharton School because uh, he knew the head of the real estate department. They were friends and he was an adjunct. Uh, and he brought me in in the 1980s and we taught a class and we wrote a book on real estate development and uh, Wiley published it in 1989. And by sheer dumb luck, and I emphasize sheer dumb luck, CNBC went on the air the month the book came out in April 89. And a friend of mine was working at CNBC and said, come on on. I went on and <laughs> basically they hired me as the real estate reporter. Now, what is the moral of the story? The moral of the story is, number one, you're a fool if you don't recognize the role of serendipity in your life. I mean, if my my father hadn't been friends with the head of the real estate center. I wouldn't have written the book. And number two, if my friend hadn't gotten a job, the first one of the first jobs at CNBC, I probably never would have been on CNBC. Now, if you don't know that's luck, you're kidding yourself. But number two is even though luck is a big part of anybody's life, you're not a leaf blowing around in the wind. I seized the opportunity to be a, a, a TV journalist um, by the by the neck. And ran with it because I loved the idea of doing that. And so, yes, it was dumb luck that I that I stumbled onto the opportunity. But I tell everybody, you can make something out of that dumb luck. It, you can change your life by application and 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 hard work. And and the minute I saw this job, I said, "Damn, this is something I really like. I could do. I could make a career out of this." And 32 years later, here I am. Bob, if we stay on the personal side of things, you know, as I think about the listeners of this podcast, we have a lot of very successful uh, individuals in their profession. They're hardworking, they're achievers, they want to be successful, but they also have families at home and uh, various issues to deal with like we all do. I'm just curious as someone who's been in the media limelight for as long as you've been in a very rigorous profession, how have you balanced your professional and personal life? Are, are there any tips you would offer? Well, I date my wife. Um, I'd say uh, <laughs> I highly recommend it, actually. Um, I you know, had to make a decision when I got this job to move to New York, um, and I decided not to. I decided to have an apartment up here, and I have an apartment here for decades, since 1990. Um, and I go back and forth. Um, uh, you know, I have a place in uh, Philadelphia, too. Um, I'm a resident here and up, up here, but uh, I date my wife, uh, and I go home every uh, every weekend. And I spend a lot of money on my wife and we're very good friends. I know this sounds corny, but my wife is my best friend. Go ahead and laugh, but it's true. And I take her out. We spend a lot of time together. And, uh, uh, she always likes to say, of course, we have a successful marriage. We don't live together. And she jokes about it, but actually, you know, I miss her and I love coming home and, and seeing her. Uh, and during the week, I tend to go out with traders at night. Um, uh, there are places and, you know, various places we like to go. I spent decades hanging out with Art Cashin uh, across the street at Bobby Vans. Uh, don't even get me started about that. And uh, it's it's a very interesting work-life balance. The problem with this job is it's very demanding. So, you know, you're up at 515. Um, you're checking the S&P futures. Great thing to check the first thing you get up. That's fun. And then you uh, you're here until heaven knows. It could be 530, 6 o'clock you know, or past that. Um, but usually I'll try to get out of here and go have a drink with somebody somewhere, sit around chat. And it's, uh, it's, 
you know what? Uh, everybody in life has to decide what they want to do. I made a decision in 2000 to stay with this. There's a whole chapter in the book about 9-11 and what it did to me uh, and about the dot-com bust. 9-11 was devastating, devastating because we all had friends who died, uh, devastating because there was a giant hole in the ground a few hundred feet from the New York Stock Exchange uh, for years, uh, for first year smelled awful, reminded everyone of the disaster. Uh, everyone was depressed, and yet everybody came to work. Everybody came to work as fearful and depressed as everyone was. And that year, that 2002 year, was the worst year of my life. Uh, and it was so bad, I considered quitting. And what happened to me was I learned to meditate. I know this sounds corny, but I actually joined a Buddhist meditation society. I was always been interested in Buddhism uh, and meditation. And it taught me that life changes. And it, nothing happened was my fault. And what you can do in life is, well, you can't change what happened. You cannot change that event. You can change your response to that event. You can change. If you stub your toe on a chair, you can't change the fact that you stubbed your toe. You could change the response. One response is you could pick up the chair and throw it through the window. Another response is meditate on what pain is like and try to control that. And that's what I did. I, I meditated on what the pain was that I felt and the loss and tried to control it. And just like the Buddhists say, you can't step in the same river twice. It turns out life changes and you get better. And I realized I shouldn't quit. I actually like this job. It's just stuff has changed around me and I need to be able to deal with that. And that's what it taught. And there's a whole chapter about dealing with loss and change uh, in the book and how I recovered. I got to say, Bob, at uh, the reception of the New York Stock Exchange, there was nobody more proud than Suzanne. And she is a ton of fun. She might be more fun than you. Oh, nobody has more fun than my wife. Um, my wife's you know, motto is, are we having fun yet? Or, you know, we're not having any fun. And she'll let me know. She'll say, this isn't fun. And if I'm out doing something or I'm I'm talking to some trader about some ridiculously boring subject like the CBOE volatility index or something like that. She'll say, she'll lean in and say, this is not fun. And I said, okay, all right, fine. Well, yeah. So you know what? It's what's great is having someone who, who tells you that that's not going to sit there in silence. She'll just say, this is not fun. Well, you guys love, love to travel. Uh, you're a jazz fest. It seems like almost every year you love going, going to music festivals, like you don't sit around. Well, one of the things that, uh, you know, there's only two things that have ever terrified me in my whole life that I'm really afraid of. Uh, the first is just being alone because I can't be alone. My whole life, I what I really wanted most was a companion, someone to be with. And I found that in Suzanne. We've been together 41 years. And so that fear never happened. The other fear I've always had is the thing that motivates me most is my love of learning, just in general. I'm sort of a self-taught guy. I have very broad interests. Besides the stock, I'm really into music. Uh, I'm really into history. I'm really into traveling. Suzanne and I have been to 65 countries in, in 40 years, and I tend to keep traveling and keep going. Um, and so, it, number one, it's a beautiful thing to have a companion that you're with for all these years that likes those two things. I always say about my wife, Suzanne, that there's two things I really like about her. Number one, she likes men. She's always liked men. Even when she was a little girl, she liked boys. Um, and that's nice because men can be kind of awful to women sometimes. And number two, she's eternally cheerful. 
And you can go a long way in life with a cheerful partner. You can go a long way with a glass half full companion. And she's always like that. And so when you do that, you go into the Jazz Fest in New Orleans and you're going to have a great time. You're going going to Vietnam. You're going to have a great time. And, you know, that's part of the great joy of life, having someone to be with and hold hands through life with. Web3 is one of the world's fastest growing industries, and the SoFi Web3 ETF is designed to make it easier than ever for investors to put their dollars into the technology they're most excited about. The SoFi Web3 ETF is the first Web3 fund on the market, and it provides investors with access to the companies powering the next tech revolution and driving a decentralized approach to the internet, such as the metaverse and artificial intelligence. Before investing, you should carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus. A prospectus may be obtained by visiting SoFi Web3 ETF at www.sofi.com slash invest slash ETF slash TWeb. Please read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Investing involves risk and the possible loss of principal. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Bob, we have a few minutes left here. I, I want to bring the conversation back to ETFs. This is obviously an ETF-focused uh, podcast. You currently host CNBC's ETF Edge, which, Tom, I know you're a uh, regular contributor to. I'm just curious, what is your take on the, the current ETF market? You know, we're seeing single stock ETFs come to market, uh, single bond ETFs. We have blockchain ETFs. A ton of huge asset managers getting involved in this space. You, you've talked about the rise of ETFs. What do you think about the ETF market right now? Well, if you'll notice, in a down year, we're still getting inflows. And what that's telling you is this, con- first off, the conversion uh, from mutual funds to ETFs is continuing because it makes sense. Um, nobody who is a mediocre mutual fund manager is going to be turned into a terrific fund manager by changing formats, but at least the tax efficiencies will be better. uh, That's for sure. Um, So uh, people have recognized the two major points, which is that indexing for most peer people is a superior investing strategy over picking stocks or hiring active managers. And number two, that ETFs are a superior investment vehicle to realize that. And those two facts is really all you need to know. You want to read the book and everybody else's book about why and the history and all that. Go ahead and knock yourself out. But that's really the, the, the key story. I became a fan of ETFs by interacting with first. Uh, I became a fan of indexing first because of my relationship with Bogle. Bogle changed my life. There's a whole chapter describing the first conversation I had with Bogle, which was 1997, and what he said to me and how it changed what I what I looked. But by then, he was already famous, uh, and he was about indexing. Um, and the ETF business was still in its infancy. The first uh, S- S&P 500 ETF had launched in, in 93. And by the way, it's the 30th anniversary coming up. Uh, for that. Um, and so it had been out for a few years, but nobody really paid an awful lot of attention to it. It was the indexing that mattered first and then the the the, um, the ETF that came around. Uh, I am uh, still kind of old school. I still believe indexing is the most important thing. I'm fine with active managers being in the ETF space. Don't kid yourself. Just remember just because you're an active manager in an ETF space doesn't mean you're a better active manager. It just improves your chances because the costs are lower. And that's Bogle's key insight. If you do any active management, make sure it's low cost active management because that's what destroys the alpha. 
high cost destroys alpha. That's it. It's very simple. So I'm a big believer in that. I have covered every other variation. Remember, Tom, pot ETFs. Uh, remember um, uh, what happened, of course, with the early stage of Bitcoin ETFs and non-Bitcoin, nobody, nothing to invest in. Remember uh, the rise of thematic ETFs. I, I spent a lot of time with tech thematic ETFs, cybersecurity ETFs, and I kept hearing Bogles over my shoulder saying, Bob, you know, talk all you want. It's not going to make any difference. You're going to tell people and have guests on to talk about cybersecurity ETFs. You know that's not going to matter, Bob. In the long run, it's going to all even out. Bob, did I not teach you anything, Bob? I kept hearing the voice in my head, but I kept going ahead with it. You know why? Because if you stamp your feet and say, damn it, Jack, shut up. All right. I hear you. I'm fine. If you keep acting like an ideologue and saying, oh, no, 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 I'm a purist. No, no. All this other stuff. You know, you're picking stocks with thematic ETF. And Jack's right. You're picking stocks with thematic ETF. Fine. But you have to acknowledge that. You have to acknowledge that people want to do that. From the very first days of CNBC, the people who are most engaged with us, and we did long-term investing, but the people most engaged were the, the people who wanted the horse race. What was going up and down on a daily basis, we saw that immediately. And so you're, you can't be too ideological about this. You have to recognize, and Jack knew that. He called it scratching the itch. He said, look, we know people are doing that. He was involved in the very first actively managed ETF, excuse me, actively managed funds at, at Vanguard, um, you know, including capital opportunities. And he knew this. So his attitude always was, you know, look, if you think you can do it, fine, go ahead. Pick a few funds that are outside, you know, the, the, the broad indexing fund and go ahead. But you said you're probably going to find out you're not going to do it. And, and, and that's why I told people about it. Finally, I just want to point out there's a chapter in the book where I describe what I own. I, it amazes me how many people write financial books and never say a damn thing about what they do. I cannot understand this. Uh, so I just decided to explain to people my whole in investing history from 1993 when I opened a GE uh, account, the 401k, uh, all the way till now and the screw ups I made and I made some epic screw ups. Uh, the most obvious one was investing in general electric stock. You know, we're restricted. I cannot own individual stocks or mutual funds. I can own, excuse me, individual stocks or bonds. I can own mutual funds and ETFs. Um, and I can own the one stock that my company I work for in 1993 it was general electric today. It's Comcast, but I bought general electric stock aggressively from 1993 to 2000, so much so that in 1999, 50% of my 401k was in GE stock. Now, you know this, you both know this, that is a stupid thing to do. You do not put too much money into your own company. It's too risky. It lacks diversification. And not only that, I knew this. Now, you know, you both know there's no rule on this, but certainly 10% at most, 50%, you're an idiot. And I was an idiot. Why did I do this? And I examined why I did this because I exhibited biases. The classic bias was overconfidence, not in me, but in Jack Welch and General Electric. And I described what it was like to work for Jack Welch. I knew him. He was a friend of mine. He loved CNBC. So I could get him on the phone and talk to him. That man was I was completely enthralled with him in 1999. That is an overconfidence bias that cost me dearly. Because GE stock, P 
peaked out in 2000 and began a long, slow descent. And here's the second stupid thing that I did. I didn't recognize what was going on and didn't want to get out because I had loss aversion. Fear, this is another stupid bias. You have a fear of uh, a loss is much greater than the expectation of a gain. And it was too difficult for me to take the loss because I still believed in Jack Welch and even in his successor that happened and didn't sell for several years. And I described this. So here is two very major mistakes I did. And I cannot say, oh, I didn't know this. I didn't learn that until 20 years later. I knew exactly what was going on. That's how strong these biases are in your head. You can know that this is not a smart thing to do and still keep doing it. So I try to just, you know, show people like I'm an idiot. You see, this is how I learn things the hard way. There's another final chapter about my love of Rock posters. I collect 1960s rock posters because I'm an old hippie, Grateful Dead type. And I describe an attempt to buy a Black Sabbath poster and the stupid things that I did buying the Black Sabbath poster. I, I, I think I'll spare you that, but that's one of the fun chapters about, about Black Sabbath. But it's really important for people to understand, I thought, for people to explain the dumb things I did and, and how I learned from from them so that I'm not speaking like some old wise man uh, you know, that descended from a mountain somewhere. That's uh, anybody who knows me would laugh at that. Hey, Bob, I know you need to run, but really quick, if you could give advice to the 20 year old Bob Pisani today, what would you tell him? Invest earlier. My father in, in my father in 1970, when I was 14 years old, bought me my first stock. It was Kawiki Burlco. They made beryllium for the space program, beryllium's heat resistant. And I was into NASA on the whole space program. Remember, Man on the Moon, 1969, I want to be a physicist. I'm really into this. My father finds out and, and, and says, here's your first stock. And I hope you'll buy more. I believe in America. My father was Horatio Alger poor Italian kid. And he said, blah, blah, blah. And I could care less about the stock market. I wanted to be into the 1960s. I wanted to hang out with the Rolling Stones. And I wanted to be with Norman Mailer and write books. And I, I, I didn't do anything. Uh, the company got bought out in 77. They wrote me a letter saying, please tender your two shares, two shares. And I wrote him a letter de- denouncing them as, you know, capitalist swine. I have no idea what I was talking about, but (laughs) I didn't want anything to do with it. So I didn't buy any stock at all until 1993 when I I finally opened a 401k. For three years at NBC, I opened up a 401k. So how old am I then? I mean, I was old then. I, I was 37 or 30. I was old. I mean, that's crazy. Do you know how much risk I've had to take over the years just to make up for that stupid thing. I mean, the list of stupid things I did, this goes on and on and on. Um, and they're in the book and I wish they weren't. I wish I could go back and change it, but you know, there it is. Warts and all. Well, gentlemen, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Bob, thank you for the time this week. This has been a, a real treat. Listeners go get this book. I can't more highly recommend it. It's insightful. It's entertaining. I promise you won't be disappointed. Again, it's called Shut Up and Keep Talking. Tom, always a pleasure. Thank you both for joining me. Thanks, Nate. Thanks, Bob. Nate and Tom, always a pleasure. I'm sure we'll be together again soon. Thank you. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, iShares. If you would like to learn more about iShares Sustainable ETFs, you can visit iShares.com slash sustainable. 
Next week, I'll be joined by Matt Hogan, Chief Investment Officer at Bitwise. The topic will be crypto and crypto ETFs, which you think we have anything at all to talk about there? And then uh, Troy Cates, co-founder and managing partner of Neos Investments, will highlight the recent launch of their initial suite of Next Evolution Income ETFs, which utilize option overlay strategies. Until then, have a great week, everyone. <laughs>